0: Hello and welcome to Habemus Papam, episode 259, St. John the 23rd. Dear brothers and sisters, annuncio vobis, annuncio vobis, annuncio vobis, gaudium magnum, gaudium magnum, gaudium magnum, habemus papam. So, today's pope was born Angelo Giuseppe Roncalli, the son of poor peasant farmers in Bergamo, Italy. He was born on November 25th, 1881, and from a young age, he discerned a priestly vocation, and his local pastor helped him not only spiritually but financially to enter into the high school seminary. He was smart, and he earned a scholarship to the Pontifical Roman Seminary in Rome, but he had to delay his formation to serve in the Italian military in 1901 and 1902. When he returned to Rome, he was ordained to the diaconate on December 18th, 1903, and to the priesthood on August 10th, 1904. Now, he intended to stay in Rome to study canon law, but in 1905, he was called back to his diocese in Bergamo to serve as his bishop's priest secretary, a position he held until 1914. At the same time, as tends to happen, he picked up other jobs, including teaching at the local seminary, he taught church history, and writing in the local Catholic newspaper. In 1915, he was called up for military duty in the First World War, and he served as a military chaplain until the end of the war. After the war, he served as the spiritual director for the diocesan seminary until again he went to Rome in 1921 to serve on the staff of the Congregation for the Propagation of the Faith, or as we call it, Propaganda Fide. It was at this time that he was named a Monsignor, but that title would be relatively short-lived. Monsignor Roncalli was chosen to be the apostolic visitor to Bulgaria in 1925, which meant that he would be ordained an archbishop and would oversee the Catholic Church in Bulgaria and work to improve relations with the Bulgarian Orthodox Church. Archbishop Roncalli was ordained a bishop on March 19, 1925. He would serve in Bulgaria for 10 years. Then in 1935, he was transferred to be the apostolic delegate in Turkey. Turkey had just undergone its own revolution, was radically secular, which meant that he couldn't wear clerical garments and had to deal very carefully with the Turkish government. This placement gave him an opportunity to really get to know the Eastern Orthodox Church, to understand Jewish traditions in the East. And uh, that Eastern Orthodox Church, of course, was based in Istanbul, where he was stationed. When World War II broke out, Archbishop Roncalli was able to use his position in Turkey and his knowledge of the Balkans around Bulgaria and his contacts all throughout Eastern Europe to work to try and help those affected by war. He was particularly concerned with the treatment of the Jews. and He met with plenty of Jewish refugees who were coming through Turkey. He was completely surprised when 1944, Pope Pius XII appointed him personally to be the new nuncio in France. It was a huge step up for a guy who seemed to be sidelined into smaller postings in Eastern Europe and Asia and not a really major player in the diplomatic corps. He spent nine pivotal years in Paris, whereas Nuncio, he would have a ton of work to do. The former Nuncio had been asked to leave by General de Gaulle, who wanted to purge all the French bishops who had assisted the Vichy government in France, as we heard last week. Now, at this time, he started to correspond a lot and developed a friendship with the Sostituto at the Secretary of State Monsignor Montini. Who was a Francophone himself and deeply concerned with the French church. And as we heard last week, Monsignor Montini would eventually succeed uh, Archbishop Roncalli in the chair of St. Peter, but that's a future story. In Pius XII's last consistory in 1953, he appointed Archbishop Roncalli as cardinal priest. Shortly afterwards, Monsignor Montini asked him if he would be willing to take over as the Patriarch of Venice, the Archbishop of Venice. It was a major see and an important see in the Italian church. Now Cardinal Roncalli was getting up there in age, he was by now in his early 70s, but he simply responded with his Episcopal motto, which was obedience and peace. And so out of obedience, he went to Venice. He spent five years there in Venice and showed himself to be a warm and engaging bishop, pastoral and caring and well-loved by his diocese. Now you can get a sense of that warmth and faith in Roncalli's spiritual diaries, which have been published. He started writing them while he was just a seminarian as part of his notes on retreats and things like that. And he carried through... In most of his life, he had a simple and deep faith of someone who is in this for the right reasons, not for advancement, but to follow Christ and desiring holiness. Which brings us to 1958 and the death of Pius XII. Cardinal Roccoli did not think that he was a candidate, and many others thought the same. He was 77. He wasn't in the best of health. He was kind of a portly man. He wasn't necessarily a major star on the church's stage. That role was taken by Archbishop now, Montini, the Archbishop of Milan who wasn't a cardinal, but he still received some votes in the conclave, even. And the challenges facing the church that Cardinal Wancali could already see seemed like they needed someone young. Nevertheless, after 11 ballots, the cardinals chose the Patriarch of Venice to be pope. He took the name John Twenty-Third. Now, keen listeners will remember that there was an antipope during the Great Western Schism named John the Twenty-Third, And there were some in the church who considered him a legitimate pope. It was the result of the Council of Pisa, and it was this time where we had three different popes in the church. Now the real John the 23rd took his name to correct that misconception saying quote there are 22 legitimate popes named John. But of course careful listeners to this podcast know that that's not true either. John the 16th was an anti-pope as well and there was no pope or anti-pope named John the 20th and you can listen to the episode about John the 21st to explain that one. But nevertheless we have Pope John the 23rd and he began his reign with a bang. A couple of months after his installation on January 25th, 1959, the Pope was meeting with a group of cardinals to pray at St. Paul's outside the walls. In his speech there, he mentioned that as Pope, he notices both in Rome and in the whole world, this spirit of the modern age, one of confusion that focuses on things that don't matter, tangible material progress with no reference to God. And he continues in his speech, quote, This observation arouses in the heart of the humble priest whom the manifest indication of divine providence led, though unworthily, to this height of the supreme pontificate, arouses, we say, a decided resolution to recall certain ancient forms of doctrinal affirmation and of wise provision of ecclesiastical discipline, which in the history of the church in an epoch of renewed yields fruits of extraordinary efficaciousness, through clarity of thought, through the solidarity of religious unity, through the living flame of Christian fervor, in which we continue to see, even in regard to the well-being of life here on earth, abundant riches from the dew of heaven and of the fatness of earth. And then he dropped the bombshell that no one was expecting. Venerable brothers and our beloved sons, we announce to you indeed trembling a little with emotion, but at the same time with humble resolution of intention to name and proposal of a twofold celebration, a diocesan synod for the city and an ecumenical council for the universal church. Everyone was caught by surprise. The Pope had not consulted anyone about calling an ecumenical council. In fact, the previous ecumenical council, Vatican I, had never been officially closed. The Cardinals were stunned, as was the whole church, and many were anxious as to what this would entail, what would it mean. But the Pope saw this as the work of the Holy Spirit, and he had to move forward. Over the next couple of years, the Vatican organized and prepared for the new council, with commissions, preparing documents, which would be the starting point for the council. The Pope didn't play a direct role in that preparation, not a huge one at least, but he prepared for it spiritually. As part of that spiritual preparation, he reached out to the Orthodox, who he already had fairly close relationships with from his time in Turkey, and to the Protestants to try and build closer ties. It was one of the first meetings between the Pope and the Anglican Archbishop of Canterbury. Likewise, he made a pilgrimage to Assisi in preparation for the council. and This was the first time the Pope had left Rome since Pius IX. Finally, on October eleventh, 1962, the council was ready and the Pope solemnly convoked it with his now famous address, Gaudet Mater Ecclesia. Mother Church rejoices. The purpose of the council, he said, was, quote, that the sacred deposit of Christian doctrine should be guarded and taught more efficaciously. The doctrine embraces the whole of man, composes he as of body and soul. And since he's a pilgrim on this earth, it commands him to tend always towards heaven. The council was an opportunity not to change dogma, but to teach it and proclaim it to the modern world, quote, that being so, the Catholic Church, raising the torch of religious truth by means of this ecumenical council, desires to show herself to be the loving mother of all, benign, patient, full of mercy and goodness towards the brethren who are separated from her, to mankind oppressed by so many difficulties, the Church says, as Peter said to the poor who begged alms from him, I have neither gold nor silver, but what I have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise and walk. In other words, the church does not offer to men today riches that pass, nor does she promise them merely earthly happiness, but she distributes to them the goods of divine grace, which raising men to the dignity of sons of God are the most efficacious safeguards and aids towards a more human life. She opens the fountain of her life-giving doctrine, which allows men enlightened by the light of Christ to understand well what they really are, what their lofty dignity and their purpose are. And finally, through her children, she spreads everywhere the fullness of Christian charity, that which nothing is more effective in eradicating the seeds of discord, nothing more efficacious in promoting concord, just peace and brotherly unity of all, end quote. Now, at the end of that day, after the convocation of the council, the Pope made an impromptu speech in the evening. Thousands of people had assembled in St. Peter's Square with candles that night, begging the Pope to speak with them. He was tired. But when he saw the crowd, he gave his famous moonlight speech, which was kind of off the cuff. Where he was very tender with the people and reportedly said, When you go back home, you will t- find your children and give them a hug and say, This hug is from the Pope. The council began in earnest, and already there was some controversy amongst the council fathers. Early on, it looked like the Roman Curia was going to kind of steamroll through the council, getting everyone to sign off on recapitulations of the Council of Trent and Vatican I without much discussion or the movement, really, of the Holy Spirit. And indeed, Pope John Twenty-third even thought the council would only take a year or so. But early on, a group of cardinals stood up to try and prevent that from happening. Led by the German Cardinal Frings and by a collection of others, including the new Cardinal Montini of Milan, these cardinals managed to prevent the council from just being a rubber stamp of the preparatory documents. Instead, they moved to reject entirely some of the most famous being the document on divine revelation. Instead, a new document was begun, helped in part by Cardinal Frings' theological advisor, Father Joseph Ratzinger. Now, at the same exact time that all this was happening, the Soviet Union had put intermediate range missiles in Cuba. And when the news broke and the Soviet Union and the United States were facing off with what was beginning to look certainly like war, the Pope sent an urgent message to the Kremlin. We beg all governments not to remain deaf to this cry of humanity that they do all that is in their power to save peace. The Cuban Missile Crisis happened the exact same month that the Second Vatican Council opened. And the, cru- the Missile Crisis ended without war, but it shook the world, shook the Council Fathers, and it shook Pope John. He wrote his encyclical, Pacem in Terrace, Peace in the World, a couple of months later, in April of 1963. But after that encyclical was published, the Pope's health, which was already bad, got worse. He began to realize that he would not be the Pope to bring the Second Vatican Council to a conclusion. On June 3rd, 1963, he died. He was beatified on September 3rd, 2000 by St. John Paul II, he was canonized on April 27, 2014 by Pope Francis. He was succeeded by Pope St. Paul VI. We will talk about him next time. Thank you for listening to Abemus Popham You can find the rest of the Catholic Link podcast at catholiclink.org or on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Thank you and God bless you.